As you're seated, if you turn again in the scriptures now to Galatians chapter 5, we'll read once more in God's word and worship him as we hear his word read. Galatians chapter 5, as Paul is exhorting the churches of Galatia unto steadfastness and to holy living, he does so, as is the case throughout the scriptures, not only clearly articulating the way and the path, but also identifying the cause and the source of such holiness. And so here then the word of God, Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then as the offense of the cross ceased, I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus far God's word. Oh, how beautiful the Spirit's work in His people is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Keeping these in mind as we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word in a moment, we'll see the clear connection that those graces which we are exhorted to put on are first put in us by the Spirit of God. Would you stand with me then as we seek the Lord's blessing upon preaching of His Word? Let us pray. God in heaven, as we search Your Word, we count ourselves privileged. For as has been prayed this evening and many times before, and has struck us on various occasions, we are a people to whom You have given the very Word. O Lord, this is a great treasure. And the more that we search it, the more we see just how unsearchable it is. It is past finding out. We cannot sound the depth of it. We cannot measure the dimensions of it. It is too great for us. And yet everywhere we look, every place we study, everything we read is pure and as silver refined seven times. And by Your grace, You have brought us to delight in Your Word. We thank You that You are also teaching us particularly about the Christian's life in this world and how it is to be lived and how it is that Christians are enabled to live that life. As we give our attention once more to this theme, we pray that You would unfold to us the truth that is here in Your Word and that You would apply it unto us and leave such an impression of grace upon us that we would realize in our own experience and witness in the lives of others what Paul here writes, that we are being made like unto the image of Him which has made us, that we indeed would bear the image of Christ Jesus more fully. We cannot think of a greater privilege in this world than to have been called unto You, saved by You, and renewed by You, and all for You. Lord, make it so that we would better know these privileges and walk in to them. By Your grace and for Your praise, forgive now our sins and bless the preaching of Your Word for Jesus' sake. Amen. The preaching of God's Word then is in Colossians 3. And there, verses 12 and 13. Colossians three twelve and 13. For the sake of context, we'll read from verse 9 through 14. And so here are these several verses. Colossians 3, 9 through 14, but particularly giving attention to 12 and 13. Paul writes, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's those two verses in particular, 12 and 13, to which we give our attention where Paul says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Living the Christian life is a life of grace, as we've seen. And so it all begins in this chapter, at least, there at verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And so it begins by the work of Christ and by the grace of Christ and is continued by that grace as well. And while it is most certainly gracious, as we'll see yet again this evening, we ought not to think that that does not mean that there is no commandment. In fact, this passage is full of commandments. And you can see it particularly in verse 12 when Paul commands, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. It is an urgent command that comes. There is a way in which, verse 10, we've already put on the new man. And this, of course, is that initial and radical work of grace whereby God has given us the new life in Christ Jesus so that we are risen with Him. We are in Him. We are uh, seated with Him. And He is in us. And Christ is indeed all for us. Yet the Christian life is not one of wrong-headed and wrong-minded leisure. It's not one where we stroll through the garden of this life and sort of enjoy the sights and sounds. There is an urgency to the way in which we carry ourselves. And you'll notice there's no vacation for the believer in this world. There's nothing, as it were, as a break for this calling. This commandment comes, and it comes with the force of urgency every moment of our lives. In other words, we're always to be putting on these things which Paul presents to us. It's always to be an active engagement of our soul, though we have providential seasons to our circumstances where the Lord may push us more into affliction or push us more into uh, the experience of spiritual growth or He'll give us seasons of relative ease to some extent or another, yet He never lifts this call from us in this life whether we are in the thick and the heaviness of the battle, or we are posted somewhere where the battle is not so clearly raging, yet it is that we are ever to be diligent to put on these various graces. The word itself is meaning to clothe. So put on means to dress oneself. And this will become especially important when Next week, the Lord willing, we'll see what Paul says in verse 14, above all, literally upon all, so the outer garment that is most prominently seen 
and everything else that is put on is charity, which is the bond of perfection. So Paul's using an image for us to think through the Christian life. Every day we clothe our bodies, and what a thought that every day we should be clothing our souls with these graces. And of course, there are myriad other ways of considering aspects to the Christian life, but here you'll see that quite clearly. And it's also intriguing to us that as Paul is exhorting us to already heavenly-mindedness and uh, living by putting things to death that are wicked and putting on things that are good, notice that all of these graces that are before us have some relevance to our life with others. This is something to remember that mankind, humans in general, men and women and children, are social creatures. It was among the first things that God noticed was not good that man should be alone. It's not good that we should be alone. This doesn't mean there are needed seasons for our uh, meditation and isolation where we are conscious of the Lord, of course, and deliberately seeking Him. But all in all, we are to be social creatures. And this doesn't change when God's grace comes upon us. There may be seasons where we need to withdraw in all order for diligent study and meditation, fasting, and so on. But the main of the Christian's life is to be lived in fellowship with others. And whereas we would love to think that that means that there would be no difficulties in such fellowship, yet Paul is quite clear that there are trials and difficulties. And this is clear in the various graces that he calls us to put on. Well, this evening, as we think about the living of this new life, which has been begun by God's grace, we wish to look at two things in the activity of living this life. The first is the graces of the new life, and secondly, the motive for the new life. What are the graces that we are actively to be cultivating and putting on And what is the cause or the motive for us to do so? Both of which are before us in these verses. So firstly then, the graces of the new life. We must understand what we are to put on. So you'll think back perhaps to younger days when you were told by parents uh, what to wear. And perhaps a special occasion comes and your parents say, put this on today for this occasion, a wedding perhaps or some other uh, activity. And there were certain clothes set aside and those clothes were to be put on. And of course, there are times when children ignore that and they wear something else and the parents say, no, no, go back and put on what you were said or told to do. This is similar to what Paul is getting at. He's telling us particularly what we're to focus on in putting on in living out this new life. We ought to remember that the whole of our identity is changed by God's grace. This is true as we've seen already from verses 1 through 11, particularly as it is, and what a comprehensive statement at the end of verse 11, Christ is all. Our identity now is Christ. We don't live by our own identities, and we don't live by our own proclivities and interests, we are now consumed with Christ Jesus. And this is true of our desires, 
It's true of our speech, it's true of our thoughts, it's true of our actions. And so all that is said this evening is in no way to minimize that. In fact, it is rather the outworking of this comprehensive change. And so as Paul is turning, as it were, our attention to how it is we're to live this new life in uh, covenant with others and in the context of others, we have to remember that all of that is flowing out of this more uh, comprehensive transformation that God has produced. But it's then that we look at these particular graces to be put on. Notice that this great change renews us and reorients us in our living toward others. And you'll see that in these verses. Notice in verse 12, Paul says, Put on bowels of mercies. This expression, bowels of mercies, does refer to the intestines. It's a quite graphic word. But it's similar to how we speak of the heart. If we say that we love somebody with all our heart, we're speaking of the sincerity of it. And it's quite common among Greek writers to refer to, not just in the Scriptures, though it is common by Paul and others, but even beyond the Scriptures, that Greek writers would appeal to uh, the bowels, the intestines, the depths of one's identity. And all of it was meant to be the sincerity of these affections. And notice, bowels of what? What is to be bound up within us and so deeply uh, realized in us? Bowels of mercies. This word mercies is a word meaning compassions. It's a word that some say comes from the exclamatory word in in Greek, oi, like our o, when we're struck with something that hurts another and we're in some sense dumbfounded and all we can get out is this expression of concern and sympathy. Uh, Regardless of its background, the word does refer to this feeling of tenderness toward the sufferings of others. In other words, that one aspect of the new man is that it sincerely impacts our souls to be struck with tenderness toward others in their miseries. And this is something that Paul is saying, of course, as the Spirit is guiding his thoughts, is to be deliberately cultivated in us. So we're to have, as it were, a hand in putting this on. Not the hand, not the ultimate cause, not the first move, but we are to be diligent in cultivating and putting on this conscious and sincere approach to others' pains and sufferings, having tenderness toward them. And you'll notice that all of the following things, in some sense or another, have relevance to the way we think of others. Notice the next that Paul mentions is the word kindness. Put on bowels of mercies and kindness. The word kindness has in its root idea this notion of uh, goodness toward others, usefulness toward others, that we are oriented now toward others in a purpose to do good to them and help them and be kind and generous to them. We're focused on what it is we can be serving them by and helping them with. And so there's a transformation of the person that is now oriented toward others, both sympathizing with them in their sorrows and pains, and yet not just having a feeling, but actually 
uh, reaching out toward them to do something positive for them. And this, of course, is then followed by the expression humbleness of mind. The word humbleness here literally has as its idea littleness. It's of a little mind. This doesn't mean uh, not smart or something of that sort, but it means rather the opposite of being puffed up and enlarged with self, that the gracious new man is a man who is uh, not oriented toward himself, looking as it were, surrounding himself with mirrors, getting all the angles on his own and making lists and thoughts about all of his own concerns. But rather, he has a little mind of himself because he's so full, as it were, of others. This is complemented with the word meekness, which of course is that word so beautifully stated of Christ Himself that He is meek and lowly in heart. It has nothing to do, as many make the point, of weakness, but rather it has the idea of being gentle. And so it's astounding at times some creatures in this world who have tremendous power that outdo human power, and yet their care for their young could be described as meek. Now certainly there are examples to the contrary, but it's fairly astounding when you can think of gorillas, for instance, and the strength that they have, and yet the tenderness that they can exercise toward their young. And, of course, the idea here is that we are made gentle toward others. And you can see parallels to the recent uh, time that we've had about godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is likewise uh, made up of these various ideas. And when one is weak, they forego disputings and they forego railings and other such things. And then added to this is that long-suffering, literally of a long spirit. And he's not as uh, we are uh, so commonly accustomed to short-tempered. So quickly something happens, so quickly there's the pushback. So quickly something's said, so quickly we feel the rush of anger and so on not easily provoked as elsewhere stated of uh, the Lord's people. Now, you'll notice that all of these, in order for them to be realized, are not to be realized in isolation or in an individualized life. Rather, they must, they demand the relating to others. Now, you can do a quick comparison of these with the vices that are to be put to death. Notice at verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence or lust, covetousness. Again, the ungodly and the sinner, they have desires, but their desires are that everything would be ordered toward themselves. And so fornication is full of lust and simply desiring the pleasure, and yet without the commitment, without the submitting, without the engaging into that relationship of marriage and loving one's neighbor as himself. Covetousness is oriented toward others' things and being filled with this envy and desire to have what others have. And obviously it's met with all manner of other vices of discontentedness and uh, anger and other such things. Notice verse 8, put off all these anger, wrath, malice, and so on which, of course, are expressed toward others. And the contrast 
is sharp and clear. Instead of this self-oriented life of the old man that is fixed on me and mine and I over others, the new man is oriented toward others in all of these graces. And Paul says, of course, God through his servant Paul, that these graces are to be put on. This is instructive. One way it's instructive is these graces are not natural. There are, of course, mimics to it. There are outward displays of it. But the very way that Paul begins this in verse 12, that we are to put on bowels of mercies, is speaking of the sincerity of it. It's not just the outward display. It's not just sort of the when it works and when it fits and when things are going well, then it is that you're to be doing these things. The world can do all of that. The world can be kind when others are kind to them, so on. But you, Christians, and you'll see the way that concretely manifests when he addresses the various callings, wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, and masters, in your callings, in the concrete details of your life, these graces are to manifest even in adverse circumstances. So in other words, there is a change required for us then to be able to put on these graces. You can think of it in the outward image that Paul's borrowing, the putting on of clothes. In order for one to put on the finest clothes, they have to have the resources to purchase them. So we might, for instance, stumble upon a catalog or on the internet, enter into the luxury of the rich, and we could look and say, look at the material, look at the clothing, look at how fine all of those things are. But we would look into our bank account and realize we don't have the ability, we don't have the resources to gain these things. We can put on you know, knockoffs, we can put off uh, copycats and so on, we can put those on, but we can't put on the real thing. Well, how much more in the gracious uh, provision of the Lord's kingdom, the dressing of the children of the king. So you think of how in the Old Testament speaks of the king's daughters and sons wearing the garb of such children. Well, the only way that one could have that is if they have the resources provided to them. And it's important for us to realize that whereas the world can have a form of kindness, where the world can have a form of meekness, and the world can have a form of long-suffering, it cannot have the real article. It cannot have the pervasive, sincere thing. That is what is provided solely by God's grace. And so as we think about this, there are ways that we can look at illustrations even from the godless and say there's an example that's instructive we'll never find the full reality because these are graces. The real article of these things is the provision solely by God's grace. These graces are real and sincere transformations of the soul. We can pretend to them. We can outwardly uh, counterfeit them, but we will never really produce them of ourselves, because again, in context, all of these things flow from Christ. So, for instance, here's a point of application. We might discover ourselves struggling with 
one of these things, whatever it might be, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, doesn't matter. And we'll be in a context and we'll say, well, what are the things I need to do in order to put these things on better? And that's a good question, and we'll have answers for that as we go through this time. But the fundamental thing that most people miss is what Paul has begun the chapter with. That we first find the provision in Christ. And this is so instructive that if we're wondering, well, why is it I'm so short-tempered? Why is it that I'm so insincere? Why is it I can put on the display, but I'm not really possessed of the bowels of mercies? I can put on the right facial expression and the gesture and do all these things, but if someone were really to peer into my heart, they wouldn't discover sincerity of compassion. So what are the things I need to do to cultivate that? Well, the first thing, of course, is to realize that it's outside of your ability to cultivate ultimately. This is the fundamental premise of the chapter and really the fundamental premise of all true godliness. The truth of godliness is a gift and grace that is only found in and by Christ. Again, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, ye can do nothing. But as we abide in Him, then it is we're able to bear not only fruit, but much fruit. Remember the parallel in Galatians chapter 5 to this sort of theme. Paul calls them there the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you look again at Galatians chapter 5, you'll see how closely the fruit of the Spirit and these articles of grace to be put on are. So Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Some of the very words that are here used in Colossians 3 are used there in Galatians 5. In other words, we can't ultimately cultivate them unless we have the cultivator abiding in us and working through us. And this, of course, is known in fellowship with Christ. And so the point isn't, we'll never ask the question, of how do I cultivate these things? The point is, the fundamental and most necessary qualification in order to cultivate is a Union and communion with Christ, a relationship with Him, a knowledge of the risen Savior, and abiding in Him. And when people scoff at the notion of daily time in God's Word, and ridicule the notion of daily prayer, and say, well, show me in the Bible where it says so explicitly, you must read your Bible daily, or you must lead your family daily. Well, there are passages we can look to, but they're missing a more fundamental point that in order for all godliness and for any godliness to be cultivated sincerely, there has to be, there must of necessity be, a link to and a conveyance from the Lord Jesus Christ of these graces. And He conveys them by His means. Much more to be said about this, but simply note for the moment that in order to put on these things, we must have access to the one whose they are. Christ owns these things. They're graces He's purchased for us and He provides them. So on. Notice, moreover, as we consider the graces of the new life, uh, that these graces move us to actions. 
So they're not just feelings, in other words. They're not just dispositions of our soul. They are dispositions and affections which lead to certain engagements with others. And so notice verse 13. He says, after identifying these graces we're to put on, he says that we're to then be forbearing one another and forgiving one another. What a word forbearing is. The notion of bearing up under anything is increasingly rare today. To endure something is quite difficult today. People can hardly hold a job in many places because they can't stand the people or the pays this or that's the other thing or whatever else. And whereas there certainly are occasions where one has to move on, yet our culture is so quick to move on from any difficulties that there's little knowledge of what enduring is. But notice here, Paul elsewhere will talk about enduring other things, but here he says forbearing one another, that we're enduring with one another. There's something to be said about the Christian who up and moves all the time. In God's providence, it may be the case. Something to be said about a minister who's never stable in a calling and can point and say, well, the people and so on. Certainly there are needs for ministers to move. There's needs for an individual to move and so on. But there's a grace that is given to the Lord's people to endure and abide and forbear with one another. And that's a manifestation of grace. This is richly handled in the book by James Durham on concerning scandal when he speaks of the counterfeit that some people have in identifying a a, a doctrinal disagreement or a tolerated sin and say, therefore I must leave, instead of cultivating a disposition toward lovingly enduring, addressing, and bearing with the fault. And yet it doesn't nearly have to be sins. It can be personalities as well. All of us know that there are some personalities that we get on with far better than others. There are some people that we instantly, as it were, click with, and others that we find something of a a labor to uh, work with. And yet the Christian has access to such graces as allows them to endure with all sorts of cultures and people and backgrounds and personalities because of, as we'll see, God's disposition toward us. We're forbearing with one another. We're not quick, as it were, to say, I'm done. But rather, we're more interested in seeing how is it that we can continue and persevere in the presence of one another, not just for the sake of suffering, of course, but rather, with all of these graces, there's a sincerity of willingness to do it. There's a desire, in fact, that prioritizes the other, that disposes us to bear with them. This is something, of course, that is contrary to the natural fallen man. The natural fallen man says, I'm done with it, I'm out and over, I don't need these people, I don't need that person, I don't need that woman, that man, that whatever. But the heart of the Christian is so transformed as that they long to be with the Lord's people. Of course, our world has become quite mobile, and so it's easy to go here, there, and everywhere else. But in Paul's day, it wasn't as mobile, so it was more customary, of course, 
to be in some sense stuck outwardly with a people. You can imagine that. In our culture, if someone were, quote, stuck, how easily it could tempt them to become discontent and to become frustrated and bitter toward the people with whom they must be with and so on. But if you see this action that is uh, brought out as flowing from the graces that are planted within, you'll understand why it is that they endure, why it is they forbear, because they sincerely love one another. They are full of compassions. They're full of kindness. They're full of humility of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. You notice that graces not only cause us to endure, but to forgive one another, freely to grant forgiveness. We don't look for you know, some sort of um, season of uh, penance before we grant forgiveness, but rather when someone comes, even as Jesus says, seven times in a day, that we would uh, freely forgive them the wrongs that they've done to us. Think of that expression, wrongs to us. There's this notion that's developing in the world. In some places, it's quite well articulated. Other places, it's sort of in the background. This notion of not looking upon what others do as wrongs against us. And it's this notion of, well, I'm sort of liberated from what power they have over me. And, you know, you haven't done a wrong to me. You know, I'm above that and so on. The reality is people wrong us. People sin when they speak, when they do certain things. They're sinning against us. And it does us no good to pretend that it's not a wrong. Uh, Probably one of the reasons that people are trying to live that way is because they don't know how to forgive. They don't know what forgiveness is or what the source of forgiveness is. Of course, the Christian has been shown radical forgiveness and so is able to face the worst of offenses and freely to forgive. Brethren, before we move on to the motive, think of the beauty of such grace. What is it like to a person possessed of such graces that is full of bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another? What would it be like to have those things in perfection? Well, it's not hypothetical. It's not an illusion or a dream. Because remember, verse 10, that we have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is the image of God. It is the perfect reality of Christ. These things are perfectly in Christ. Because Christ, of course, is perfect. And all of these graces to which we are called and that we're called to put on are things that He possessed without measure because they are the fruit of the Spirit. And He possesses the Spirit without measure. Uh, He is, of course, the very standard of the image we bear. It's His image we bear. And what's going on is we're putting on the clothing, if you could think of spiritually, of Christ. This is what is meant elsewhere when Paul says, put on Christ. This is what he means. Put on the graces of Christ. Put on Christ Himself. In other words, there's no putting on these things unless we first know Christ and are engaged with Christ and 
knowing his beautiful provision placed upon us. This is the beauty and what a privilege then that we are called to bear his image. Well, let's move on then to the motive of the new life. What is the thing that causes us to pursue these diligently? Because doubtlessly we hear these things and each of us knows of circumstances where we struggle with them. And perhaps we're tempted to say, why would I want to put all the effort that is demanded, all the self-denial, why do I want to put my soul through the agony of crucifying the flesh and putting off all of these inordinate affections and the difficulty of putting on the beautiful graces of God when I know the pains that I face and the difficulties that are before me. Well, notice that Paul begins this verse with an appeal, put on therefore as the elect of God. In other words, the motive and the cause is God's gracious choice of us. In other words, it starts from a far higher vantage point. It doesn't start with men. It starts with God. It starts with His grace as the elect of God. God has graciously chosen us. He's chosen us to live as His chosen people. In other words, Paul is not merely saying, well, since you're the chosen of God. The the word that's here, as the elect of God, is actually saying you're supposed to live as the elect of God live. So he's not just saying you're the elect of God and now we'll move on, but he's saying there's a standard for those who are called and chosen of God, and you're now to live according to that standard. Oh, what a grace this doctrine of election presents to us. You can see it clearly in a number of chapters But just for the sake of our time, notice Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, how much this emphasizes God's grace. Many have spoken beautifully of this, none better than Christ Himself or His Apostle inspired of the Spirit. When we see verse 11, Romans chapter 9 verse 11, speaking of Jacob and Esau, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, Notice this expression, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Whatever other people have of debating the doctrine of election as taught in the scriptures, we ought to see clearly that the doctrine of the Bible regarding is the clearest testimony. It's by grace alone. It's not by works. It's not by works done. It's not by works foreseen. The purpose of God according to election. The doctrine of election is the demonstration that salvation is by grace. Paul will speak later in Romans chapter 11 of uh, this idea in verses 5 and 6. He's speaking of the election of of grace, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So the election of grace is the clearest testimony that such is grace. Well, brethren, go back to Colossians now and notice how Paul addresses the Christian. He calls them the elect of God the chosen of God. 
those whom God has freely chosen unto everlasting life. As those chosen of God, they are those who have been shown the highest and greatest privilege known to man. Because no man of no generation is able to say, I am saved because of what I've done. Anyone who's ever been saved or ever shall be saved must at the end of all else that is said say this, the only cause, the only reason is that God in His mercy and grace has chosen me freely. This choice of God changes our standing. Notice Paul says, as the elect of God, holy. The word means those set apart to God. Remember, we read earlier in Exodus chapter 19, God displayed His judgments against the Egyptians, but His people, His chosen people, He carried to Himself as on eagles' wings. That expression, He brought them to Himself. He's bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and death and bondage unto Himself. To be what? A kingdom of priests unto Him. The idea is that God reorients them. You see, this is, of course, what's being applied. God has chosen us, and He's reoriented us toward Him, and in doing so, He also reorients us toward others. We now stand as those who are set apart to God. We now stand as those who have lost our own interest. You can think of all of these testimonies that Christ bears about the way of salvation. Of course, it's by faith alone. But the ways in which he speaks of it as, you know, we're in Luke 18, and he speaks of the rich, uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Why? Because the rich man is so enamored with this life and all of what this life offers to him. And though every man, rich or poor, is equally enamored with themselves, The rich man has a taste of what this world can give and is strengthened in his desire for that, whereas the poor at least have been preserved from that experience. The point is, God has called us from self-indulgence, from self-service, from self-care, from self-love, unto an orientation toward God that is consuming my whole life, with my whole heart, with all that I am, is now dedicated unto God. Why? Because God has called us to it. God has chosen us and given us this new standing so that once we were profane, selfish, and sinning, now we are set apart and made holy unto God. Notice this displays His tenderness toward us, holy and beloved. Now, we of course acknowledge that as the Bible teaches that God is not as we are. He isn't one who feels and experiences passions. But we're wrong to think that there's nothing of love in God. If we have to think, well, you know, we get overworked by our passions and emotions, so we can't attribute that to God, we're right. But we're wrong to then say that God does not sincerely love His people. God gives us that very expression. And there's something that is true about our love to others, that in one way or another is indicative of God's sincere love to us. He truly 
loves his people so that we are beloved. We are those loved of God. Now this, of course, leads us then to this concrete expression of this motive because notice he says, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, if anyone has a complaint against any, notice the margin. It's not just a nonsense quarrel, but a complaint even that one could point out and say, you've done this. Here's the fault. And someone says, well, you should forgive them. They say, well, how can I forgive them? They've done this evil against me. Paul says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Think of that for a moment. How many complaints does God have against us? How, many, how long is the list against us of all of the sins we've committed against Him? In ignorance, some. In knowledge, others. Some more, some less heinous. But oh, how long that list is of complaints that He would lawfully have and prosecute against us. But here is this great testimony of His love that as Christ forgave us, then we are to forgive one another. See, our action, our putting on the new man and the activity that flows from that is founded upon God toward us. Christ forgave you. How did He do it? He did it freely. How many times have we come to God and we've thought, oh, the depth of my conviction, the depth of my repentance. And then a week or two passes, and we realize, well, though I truly confessed and so on, I, I thought I was far deeper in all of those expressions than I really was. And yet, Christ freely forgives. The point is, the immeasurable fact of God's forgiveness of us for Christ's sake is then to guide and motive, motivate us in our forgiving of others. What God is to us, what God has done for us, is to then motivate our putting on the new man for others. So as we think of this, we can conclude with a few points of application. How is it then that we go about these things? Well, again, we start by remembering Christ. This is nothing that a natural man can do. This is nothing that we in our own strength can do. If we are to put on the new man, we must have the resources provided to us, not just as it were the articles of clothing, but the gracious ability to put them on. And all of that is already expressed. We need not go through it in depth, simply to note that in order for one to live, one must first have life. And this life, of course, of spiritual and Christian living is that by grace in Christ Jesus. But notice then, if we're to put this on, it's something that we must consider. Paul's calling our attention to these particular graces. He's naming them. They have definite meaning. They have thought that's being conveyed to us. And if we're to think about that, we need to, or if we're to put them on, we need to think about these things. This is part of what meditation is, meditating upon these graces. It's taking time, and it could be you know, for a long time, it could be for a little time. But we should be thinking about, just as we wake up in the morning and we think, what am I going to wear today? And we think, perhaps we pull open a drawer, we open a closet or whatever, maybe we do it the night before, however it is. We think, okay, where am I going? What am I going to be doing? What should I be wearing then? 
Well, here's something that we can do. We can think, what should I be wearing spiritually? Well, to do that, we need to realize what God says we should be wearing, what God says we should be putting on. And he says, of course, these graces. And so this then demands that we think about that, that we examine ourselves and say, you know, how is it with me on these things? What are these things that I should be putting on? And of course, we should be looking upon them, asking that God would make them to appear to us as satisfying and beautiful as they are to Him. God sees these things as beautiful, and doubtlessly, in Christ, we see them as beautiful. We witness them as Christ approaches us, and these are the things which draw us to Him. These are the things which satisfy our souls when we see His disposition counted or recorded in the Gospels. And we know that we have the same Christ, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can draw near to Him with all of the assurance that His graces is still toward us as He's promised. They're beautiful things. But of course, we ourselves are not perfect as He is perfect. And we at times look upon the outworking of vice and sin as more desirable than the outworking of grace and righteousness. So we must ask the Lord, Lord, help my eyes to be renewed, that I would see these articles, these parts of the new man, these clothings of the new man as beautiful and desired, that we would see as you see. And so we go to God to help us with that. And we think through the various outworkings of what this would look like in our lives. We think through perhaps the individuals or the context where we may be more tempted to take off the new man and put on the old man. And we say, Lord, in such a moment as that, give me grace. Oh, provide me Your Spirit. Bless that He would produce these in me. You see, the putting on is not divorced from the fellowship of Christ. The putting on of these things is in communion with Christ. It's in concert with Christ. It's as Christ is in us and we in Him that then we are able to put them on. So in other words, the putting of these things on is by going to Christ and asking for Him to dress us, for Him to cultivate this in us, to say, you in your Word have said that you'll be satisfied seeing the travail of your soul. In the travail of your soul, you not only purchase the people, but you purchase these graces to apply to your people. So I come to you and I say, O oh God, make these things so in my life. And where they have not been so, forgive me, convince me, convict me. But O oh Lord, forgive me. Make me to see the beauty of these things. Make me to look upon one another uh, others, as you've looked upon me freely, graciously. In other words, transform me from within, that then I may put these things on more actively and fully day by day. Doubtlessly, believer, there's much that convicts us. Oh, the words and thoughts that we've often spoken and thought, and how struggle, of us, much of a struggle it can be at times. But we're to remember that. These exhortations come to us in the context of knowing the risen and ascended and reigning Christ. And so when Paul begins with set your affection on things above and directs us to Christ, 
Remember that expression, fix your mind on Him. Because as your mind is fixed on Him, then you're able from Him to draw all of these graces and by His grace put them on to the exercising of your soul in this present life, in the most adverse of circumstances, the most difficult of trials, and all to the praise of Him who is at work in His beloved people. Well, stand with me as we seek the Lord.